Now, last week uh, we were looking at covenant, the doctrine of covenant, having looked at uh, the doctrine of man and uh, man as created in the image of God and man as, as fallen and sinful and depraved in a state of condemnation and a state of inability. Um, we, uh, we are heading towards the answer to the question, how, how is man in that state going to be brought into fellowship uh, with God? And the answer to that question is in Christ, uh, but the answer to that question also is because God takes initiative. And he takes initiative by making a covenant. Uh, and uh, that's where we were last week. We, we looked at um, covenant theology uh, in its broadest categories. Uh, we tried to take a, a 36,000 feet uh, survey uh, looking looking down over the sweep uh, of uh, redemptive history, over the entire course of the Bible, uh, and to suggest that God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, uh, and that everything that God does in the accomplishment of redemption, he does in fulfillment of a covenant, a covenant of grace. Now, we're very familiar with covenants, um, Marriages, um, mortgages, um, inheritance uh, from um, a will, contracts uh, of goods and services, uh, all of these involve uh, covenants uh, in some form or another, and often these covenants are are written uh, and signed. at a wedding, uh, there's a little ritual um, that uh, you have to sign a piece of paper. It's an official document, registers the marriage as legal uh, within the rules of consanguinity, as they say. And uh, it, it, of course, you need to sign on the right line and, and not on the incorrect line, as I did recently. Uh, and then it all has to be done all over again, and uh, because it's a legal document. Uh, Now tonight, I want us to look at um, the various covenants, uh, the covenant with Adam, uh, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, uh, covenant with Moses, covenant with David, uh, and then a promise in Jeremiah 31 of the new covenant. And I I want to look, I I want to land, as it were, and and take a look at each of these covenants uh, in succession, and then to ask some Uh, questions of each one of them and and note some of the characteristics of these uh, individual covenants. So we begin with uh, the question, uh, one lump or two, one covenant uh, or two. Uh, And um, my own understanding here is uh, bicovenantal. In other words, there are two major covenants in the Bible. One is a covenant in Uh, the Garden of Eden uh, with Adam uh, as the representative of uh, humanity, a covenant of works, a covenant of probation, a covenant that threatened a curse for disobedience, and we infer 
uh, that that covenant, had he fulfilled that covenant, that that covenant would have been perpetuated and, and that there would have been even greater blessings than the blessings that he would have uh, enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. A uh, technical definition of that is given in the Westminster Confession, uh, uh, Westminster Confession 7.2. Uh, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. So that covenant with Adam, a covenant that failed, a covenant that was broken, Um, But there is a covenant with Adam, and we usually call that a covenant of works. And then in contrast to that, there is a covenant of grace. Uh, You see the first announcement of the covenant of grace in Genesis 3.15, the so-called first gospel promise that in the the seed of uh, of Eve uh, will crush the head of Satan, although his heel will be bruised in the, in the process of that, um, that God initiates this covenant to destroy the works of darkness and to bring to pass his uh, plan of redemption. Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, namely the covenant of works, The Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. And it's that last section that ensures the graciousness of that covenant. So, we sometimes speak of the Bible as bi-covenantal. There are two covenants, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Uh, The second question is one covenant or many. uh, What are we to make of the fact that um, in addition to the covenant of works... We also have many different covenants spoken of in the Bible. Covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham, Moses, uh, David, and, and so on. And are these, are these entirely separate covenants as, say, classic dispensationalism uh, will suggest? And the notes in uh, various uh, dispensational Uh, study Bibles will speak of uh, seven different dispensations uh, so that that what God is doing and that the method of salvation and and those whom he intends to save are different within each different dispensation or or are those various covenants uh, with uh, Abraham and Moses and David and so on, are they all expressions of the one covenant of grace with perhaps nuances for the period in history in which they are found, but they are essentially all expressions of the one covenant of grace. Now, let me make a point here. Uh, Don't confuse old covenant and new covenant with 
covenant of works and covenant of grace. Right? We've, we've said there are two covenants in the Bible. Covenant of works with Adam in Eden and then the covenant of grace. But that's not the same as the old covenant and the new covenant. Right? The old covenant and the new covenant are both expressions of the one covenant of grace except that one is in the Old Testament and the other is in the New Testament. One is in the period before Jesus and one is in the period after Jesus. But the essential method of salvation is the same in both periods, before and after Jesus. So don't confuse covenant of grace, covenant of works with old covenant, new covenant. Uh, so what are we to make then of these numerous covenants? And, and this, is, uh, this is the answer of the confession, uh, chapter 7 and sections 5 and 6. Section 5 says that this covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and the time of the gospel. Uh, law and gospel is being used there as Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, It's the one covenant, it's in the singular, it's not covenants in the plural. This one covenant is administered differently under the old covenant in the time of law than it is in the time of the gospel. And you need only think, for example, that under the time of law there were animal sacrifices and in the time of the gospel there are not. So that would be one, one area in which it was differently administered. But it's the one covenant that is operative. Uh, under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances. So it's, uh, it's saying that under the old covenant, in the time of the law, before Jesus came, uh, it was all type and shadow and sketches, and it was anticipating, it was looking forward, so that the, the, the temple ritual, the ceremonial law, the sacrifices of animals, circumcision, the Passover ritual, they were all pointing toward the coming of Jesus. They were, they were pointing toward the way in which uh, the gospel uh, would make that, as it were, in colored pictures rather than in, than in, than in black and white. Uh, let's move on to the second uh, statement there, uh, Westminster Confession 7, 6. Uh, under the gospel, when Christ, the substance was exhibited... The ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not therefore... Two covenants of grace, differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. Now that last sentence is worthy of a 20-hour lecture. Uh, It is in fact a key, if you grasp the meaning of that last sentence, you really grasp a key as to how to read the Bible. You can plop down in the middle of Leviticus, you can come right down in the middle of the uh, Isaianic uh, prophecies, the prophecy of Isaiah, you can, you can come into the book of Romans or Revelation, and you have one story, one God, one covenant of grace, one way of salvation, 
sometimes, I think I told you last week, sometimes when we interview a professor at the seminary, we, we often, especially if he's an Old Testament professor, we ask a very simple question. You know, how were they saved under the Old Testament? Because the answer to that reveals a great deal. And uh, that sentence, this is the one you, you have to memorize for the test. Um, there are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. And, and that sentence is like, it's like turning a light on. It's like turning a spotlight on. And if you, if you grasp that one sentence with all of its implications, you have a, you have a key to how to read the Bible. Uh, you have a key to uh, why we're Presbyterians. You have a key to why we baptize infants. You have a, a key to an understanding of a, a very important principle uh, of interpreting uh, the Scriptures. I uh, just would have liked to have been uh, there when, that, when whoever it was came up with that one sentence. And, uh, and you couldn't craft, I think, a, a better sentence uh, than that. Now let's uh, move on to the covenant of works. Uh, let's look at it. Uh, we've, we've said a few things about it, but I want to say uh, a, a couple of things. Um, it's variously called uh, the Adamic administration uh, uh, John Murray calls it the Adamic administration. Uh, I won't say any more about that. Uh, s- some of you in here know that that means m- more than what it might appear on the page. Um, covenant of creation, uh, Palmer Robertson. Uh, covenant of life, uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism and Shorter Catechism refer to it as the covenant of life. Uh, and uh, the Westminster Confession refers to it as the covenant of work. So it, it's called various things, and you might say, wh- why did uh, the larger catechism call it one thing and the confession call it another? And uh, you have to appreciate that in 1645, the, the, whole, the whole business of uh, covenant theology was fairly new. Uh, the terms were still fairly new. Uh, some of these terms, like covenant of works, was perhaps barely 10 years old uh, at this point in, in uh, church history. Uh, so it's not surprising that there's a nuance uh, as to what they call it. But uh, they all mean the same thing. They're all referring to the same, uh, to the same uh, uh, administration or, or, or God's dealings uh, with Adam as our representative. Now the basic idea is that God promises to prolong and augment uh, the relationship that Adam has with God in the garden, provided that Adam uh, observes this one uh, prohibition with respect to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want you to notice three features uh, of the covenant of works. Uh, First of all, that, that conditional promise and threat Uh, In the day that you eat of it, that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. So there's the threat. There's an implied promise. It's not not written, but it's implied that had Adam obeyed, uh, that blessings would have have ensued. Um, All all we are given is the negative here. Uh, Notice that there is grace uh, within the covenant of works. Uh, And and there are two particular features that speak of that grace. Uh, One is the abundant provision. Uh, They had access to the entire garden. 
uh, the, it was just one of the trees that's, that uh, there was a prohibition, but they had, they had access to this lavish uh, provision. Uh, plus, they, they already had fellowship with God. So there was, there was grace within the covenant of works. And then thirdly, that salvation is pictured by Christ as fulfilling the covenant of works. Um, think of the, uh, of the statement in uh, Romans 5.19, uh, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many uh, will be made righteous. Uh, in other words, we are to view the work of Christ as fulfilling the covenant of works. Right, so a category, a way of thinking about the atonement, there are many ways of thinking about the atonement. Uh, he was our substitute, he was our sin bearer, uh, he, he, was, uh, he, he satisfied the demands of justice, um, but he was, he was also obedient. Uh, that's how Paul speaks of it in Philippians chapter 2, for example. He was obedient even unto death, right, right up to the point of death. Uh, he engaged in obedience, he obeyed uh, the law of God. He did that which Adam did not do, uh, which is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of Adam as uh, the last Adam or the second uh, man. Uh, he, is, he, is, he, is, he is Adam all over again, this time not disobeying, but this time obeying the covenant of works. Now that's why I asked the question, uh, is the covenant of works still operative? Uh, so you have the covenant of works, Adam disobeyed the covenant of works, and, and we're introduced to the covenant of grace. Uh, but is the covenant of works still operative? Uh, and there are some, particularly in New Orthodox uh, uh, directions, that, that are adamant uh, that, that it is not operative. But, um, but in the sense... In the sense that there remains upon us an obligation to obey the law of God, yes, it is still operative. You know, you may wonder, why did Jesus answer the rich young ruler, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he takes him to the Ten Commandments. Perhaps in part, Jesus is teaching the rich young ruler that the way, the way into heaven is by obedience to the law, you and I can't do that. Only Jesus can do that in our room instead. But that doesn't remove the obligation. Uh, and uh, he needs to be taught that he cannot obey the terms of entry by his own, uh, by his own uh, merit. And then I think I have, uh, I think I have some quotes uh, there. Um, one from... Um, Roland Ward, uh, right at the end uh, uh, on the top of the page four, um, God's claim to obedience is not ended by humanity's rebellion. Uh, unbelievers continue to be subject to the covenant of works as a duty and obligation, although it can no longer justify them. Further, the conditional promise remains in effect, although it cannot be met. Uh, so that's how, uh, that's how Roland Ward uh, would answer the question, is the covenant of work still, uh, still operative? And in a sense, uh, that's what the death of Jesus on our behalf is suggesting, that the way into heaven is by obe obedience to the law of God. 
And that's what he does. He obeys on our behalf. He obeys as another Adam in our room instead. Well, let's move to the Noahic covenant. Uh, now, now we're in uh, a, a different kind of covenant. Uh, this is a covenant of preservation. Uh, it's variously called uh, a covenant of preservation or a covenant with nature, uh, or sometimes simply the Noahic uh, covenant. We talked about this a little when we did our little lecture on common grace, because the Noahic covenant has implications for, for the whole of creation. Uh, I just want to note one thing here about the Noahic covenant. The sign of the covenant is a bow. It's a rainbow. Uh, and notice that the bow is pointing away from the earth. Uh, think of a bow and arrow. The arrow would be pointing away from the earth. Uh, in other words, uh, that, the, that the curse of the covenant is no longer going to fall upon creation. That's God's promise. Uh, within the Noahic covenant. It is pointing away from the earth. Now, next time you see a rainbow, don't look for the crock of gold. Just remember the promise of the Bible. No longer will God curse the earth in the way that he did uh, at the time uh, of Noah. Notice also what this, bo- what this bow means. God does not say to Noah, this is, this is what the bow means to you, but, but this is what we read. This is what it means to me. Right? When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh. Right? So the, the rainbow is, not, is actually not there for us. It's actually there for God. God sees the rainbow and he remembers the promise. Uh, that's an interesting little, little twist, isn't it, uh, in the Noahic covenant. God remembers. Now, God doesn't forget, of course, but God speaks. Remember, we spoke spoke, uh, a long time ago now about anthropomorphisms. God speaks in human language. He uses baby talk, if you like, uh, to to come down to our level. Uh, And God sees the rainbow and he remembers the promise uh, that he made. Let's move on to the Abrahamic covenant, and I want to spend a little more time here. The covenant sign is uh, circumcision. It's called the sign of the covenant in Genesis 17.11. Note it is tiny and private as compared with the rainbow, uh, which is massive and public. Uh, The promises of the covenant with with Abraham, uh, and there are four of them. One is personal. Uh, Your name will be Abraham. So his name changes from Abram to Abraham. Suggesting that he is a new man. Um, there is a domestic promise. I will make you exceedingly fruitful uh, with a family of nations and kings. There's a spiritual dimension to the promise. My covenant between me and you and your offspring after you expressed in the circumcision of the eighth uh, of the eight day old uh, child. And then there's a territorial aspect uh, to, the, to the promise, uh, all the land of Canaan. Now, grace, uh, this, this act of grace to Abraham, uh, bringing him uh, out of Ur of the Chaldees and calling him uh, into fellowship with himself and giving him uh, this, uh, these promises and the sign of circumcision, um, 
Abraham was to obey that uh, sign. He was to uh, he was to apply circumcision, uh, not only to to his infant son, but but also to himself. Um, the, the response. I want us to see that the response of obedience. It is a response. It is it is a response to grace that has already been displayed, but that response of obedience is is essential, it is intrinsic to the covenant, uh, and that's going to be important when we come to the Mosaic covenant, which is all about law, uh, and, and people, people uh, sometimes misunderstand the Mosaic covenant, uh, the, that the Abrahamic covenant is all about grace, and, and the Mosaic covenant is all about law, uh, as though the two are in conflict, but there are, there are legal dimensions to the Abrahamic covenant, there were things that God expected Abraham to do, in response to the grace that God showed in initiating the covenant. Now sometimes the Abrahamic covenant is uh, viewed as, as the archetypal covenant of grace. Uh, it, is the, it is the covenant uh, that, that more than any other covenant displays uh, God's graciousness to sinners. Uh, notice in Genesis 15, 18, uh, the Abrahamic covenant is spoken of in three places, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. Uh, and in Genesis 15, 18, uh, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Uh, the, the verb made uh, is actually the verb to cut. And uh, theologians and, and Hebrew scholars, and I've quoted one of them, uh, William Dumbrell here, argues that the use of that verb to cut uh, suggests that this is not the inauguration of the covenant. It suggests that the covenant is already in existence and that what is taking place here is a confirmation of an already existing covenant. So when that verb uh, to cut uh, occurs... Um, in, in Hebrew, um, kara in Hebrew, uh, then, then that verb is suggestive of an already existing covenant. And that means that when God spoke to, to Abraham in Genesis 12, although the word covenant doesn't occur there, that actually was God's inaugurating of his covenant with Abraham. And, and then in Genesis 15, it's a confirmation of that covenant. Right? So it suggests, as I said, uh, Genesis 12, 1 to 3 is the inauguration of the covenant. Um, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now the word covenant doesn't occur there but that is a covenant inauguration uh, ceremony there in Genesis chapter 12. And notice uh, several things here uh, about this covenant with Abraham. First of all, that it is sovereignly administered. Uh, this is not a barter 
this is not uh, two people uh, like when you buy a house, you know, you, you, uh, you, you, you ask for this amount and then somebody will suggest another amount and then you sort of meet halfway and, and sometimes the realtor will tell you, uh, you know, where halfway might be and you, you, you might still get the house if you, if you come your side of the halfway and if you really want the house, maybe you go the other side of the halfway uh, and so on. But it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an agreement really between two people uh, but uh, God's covenants are always sovereignly administered. Um, I, I, will, uh, I will make of you a great nation. I will do this. I will do that. I make a covenant with you. So the Lord comes to Abraham. Um, notice too that, uh, that grace, uh, there is grace and there is obedience in the Abrahamic uh, covenant. We'll come back to that uh, in a moment, um, suggesting... I'm suggesting that, that every relationship with God, even though he sovereignly uh, initiates the relationship, there are, there are still obligations. Um, we, are, we are obligated in the covenant of grace to love him, to serve him, um, to, to give ourselves uh, wholly to him. Uh, so it's sovereignly administered. Um, there are responsibilities or directives uh, and there are four of them, to leave his country, uh, to leave his family influence and environment. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't personally interpret uh, the taking of Lot as a violation of that, uh, his nephew, uh, although Lot got him into heaps of trouble for sure. Uh, but I, I don't think that taking Lot was in itself a violation uh, of, uh, of that uh, directive. Uh, the third directive was to leave his father's house, but by which I, I understand to leave his father's authority and, in Abraham's case, a pagan worldview uh, that his father would have, would have had, and to go to a land which the Lord will, will show him. And the blessings of this covenant... Uh, he will be made a great nation. Remember, Abraham doesn't even have a son at this point. He, he has no children at this point. And the promise of the covenant is um, that he will be made a great nation. That's a huge promise since Abraham is 70 and Sarah is uh, 65. And they would wait another 25 years uh, before God fulfilled that. Uh, just a little reminder that God is never in a hurry. Um, he, he is to be blessed uh, the nature of that blessing is unspecified, uh, but in verse 3, they will be blessed or cursed as they bless or curse Abraham. So he will be blessed. His name will be great. Uh, partly, I think, in contrast, in the context, you remember, um, Babel, the Tower of Babel, was an attempt to make man's name great, and God says, I will make your name great. Uh, and I'll do it in a way that is wholly opposite to the Tower of Babel uh, uh, incident. Uh, and all the families of the earth will be blessed in uh, Abraham. Uh, and, and there in the Abrahamic covenant is, is an implied great commission uh, that, that go into all the world, go to all the nations... Uh, so that Matthew 28, the familiar Great Commission, is often seen as a kind of New Testament repetition of the covenant made with Abraham. There are lots of Abrahamic covenant 
um, little features in the Great Commission in, in Matthew 28. Uh, let's look at Genesis 15. Um, uh, Genesis 15, we won't go into all of the details, but you remember there's, um, this is where God cuts the covenant, uh, establishes, confirms the covenant that he had already made in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, in Genesis 15, you remember you have this, uh, this ritual of, of uh, Abraham slaughtering these animals, dividing them in half, uh, except for the birds, and, and then this smoking fire pot comes down and passes between um, the severed uh, pieces. Now, a number of things to note uh, here. First of all, that Abraham prepared the sacrifice according to God's command. Uh, the ceremony was an oath-taking ritual. It's a, it's a self-maledictory uh, oath. God is saying, this is what happens to me. Remember, this, this, the smoking uh, uh, fire pot is... Uh, is uh, emblematic of God think of um, think of the pillar of cloud and fire think of uh, the fire that surrounds Mount Sinai uh, these are these are representations of the presence of God so so the smoking fire pot that passes between the severed pieces uh, is God saying uh, this is what will happen to me these these severed carcasses, this is what happens to me if I fail to fulfill the terms of this covenant. Uh, it's, it's God imposing a self-malediction uh, upon himself. Notice that Abraham was immobilized. Uh, as the sun was going down, he fell into a deep sleep, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So, so the Lord alone here is the oath-taker. Uh, notice too that the lack of direction and explanation means, uh, Alec Matias says, that the, that, the, this, this, uh, th that the covenant involved the sacrifice of animals and therefore bloodshedding uh, was something that was very familiar to Abraham. He, he didn't have to be told why this was being done. It, it was obviously a ritual uh, that was already known to him. So the idea of sacrifice, bloodshedding to atone for sin, was something that was al already known to Abraham. Now Jeremiah 34 uh, sheds light uh, on uh, those, who, uh, um, those who enter into covenant and break it. Uh, will be treated like the severed calf. And, and there's an allusion in Jeremiah 34 to this, this ritual in Genesis 15 of the smoking pot uh, passing between the severed pieces. And Jeremiah is explaining uh, that this is a kind of a malediction, that there's a, a curse involved here, an implied curse uh, for failure to comply with the terms of the covenant. And, and in this case, that curse is coming upon God himself. Uh, the darkness uh, may symbolize God's judgment and hiddenness. Uh, Dr. Ferguson suggests uh, that Abraham needed to learn to trust God in the dark. Uh, so there's, there's a darkness here and, uh, and, and uh, God's mysterious ways and Abraham has to trust him in the dark. Uh, may I be cut. Uh, he was... Um, the, the, uh, 
the, uh, the severing, the cutting of the, of the animals. Remember the cutting of the covenant, the cutting of the sacrificial uh, animals. And then think of uh, the fourth servant song in Isaiah 53, uh, which says that he was cut off or cut out, off out of the land of the living, living stricken for the transgressions uh, of the people. A uh, very, very familiar line in Isaiah 53, referring, of course, to Jesus. In other words, this gives you a clue, Genesis 15, Jeremiah 34, Isaiah 53, are giving you clues that that self-maledictory oath actually fell upon Jesus. Now, why did that self-maledictory, why was he cut, as it were, cut off? Um, Because he was perfect. He was sinless. Because our sin was reckoned to him. Uh, In the words of Luther, you know, at the point at which Jesus died, he was the greatest sinner uh, the world had ever seen. Because our sins had been reckoned to him. So that self-maledictory oath falls upon Jesus uh, as our sin bearer. Right. So there there are little connections between the covenant with Abraham Jeremiah 34, Isaiah 53, uh, and uh, um, uh, notice uh, Galatians 3, that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So for Paul, you know, what are we as Christians? We are children of Abraham. So he's explaining what a New Testament Christian is, and he explains it in terms of the Abrahamic covenant. We are children of Abraham. So there's a line of continuity from Abraham into the New Testament. It's not discontinuous, it's a line of continuity. Uh, Genesis 17 um, uh, reaffirms, uh, there are four or five promises here, reaffirms God's covenant commitment. I may may make my covenant between me and you, will establish my covenant between me and you. That covenant that we've already seen in Genesis 12 and reaffirmed in Genesis 15 is reaffirmed again in Genesis 17. The reason, of course, it has to be reaffirmed is because of Abraham's constant unbelief. Uh, Abraham's descendants will be included and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Uh, Note that the terms of this covenant are not just for the period of the Old Testament, but they're actually everlasting, implying that there's an element of continuity in the way God promises to Abraham and his seed, that that, that that idea continues until Jesus returns, right? All the way right through into the, into the new covenant. Notice what Palmer Robertson calls the Emmanuel Principle. Uh, Emmanuel means God with us, right? Emmanuel means God with us. What's at the heart of the covenant? I will be to you a God, you will be to me a people. God with his people, or God in relationship with his people. God in fellowship with his people. Uh, Think of it in terms of union with Christ, if you like. Um, Notice the land promise, uh, I will give to you and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, uh, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. Uh, You may wonder 
uh, how, how the everlasting element of that uh, uh, continues. Uh, and I would suggest that it doesn't continue in geography. It doesn't continue in, in the zip codes uh, which make up uh, Israel or Palestine. But uh, we look for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So uh, the meek shall inherit the earth. Right? So there's still a, a land promise, uh, even in the new covenant, even though it's differently administered, it's actually the same promise. Uh, notice there are covenant obligations in the covenant with Abraham. Be perfect or be blameless, Genesis 17.1. Now, I want, to, I want to emphasize that because when you come to Moses, there's a lot of law and, 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 and people find that difficult then to square with the graciousness of the covenant with Abraham. But the covenant with Abraham also involves obligations. Obligations that are subsequent to grace. Right? Abraham doesn't obey in order to receive grace. But having received grace, having entered into fellowship with God, he is now under obligation to serve him. Uh, notice um, uh, circumcision, uh, the sign of the covenant. It's actually called the covenant. Uh, if you drop down to the figure one at the bottom of the page, circumcision equals covenant. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. So it's almost equating covenant with circumcision itself. Uh, this is uh, delicate, so uh, I won't look at anybody in the face. I never found this easy to talk about, but it's in the Bible. Um, uh, circumcision is a cutting ritual. Um, note, note the threat that is implied by non-compliance. Genesis 17:14. He shall be cut off. Right, the use of the verb, same same verb to make a covenant to establish the covenant, to confirm the covenant, is the same verb that's used for uh, the, the action of circumcision, and, and therefore uh, covenant is equated with circumcision. Uh, remember that Jesus was circumcised. Uh, he was also baptized, receiving the baptism of John. I have a baptism uh, with which I must be baptized. So there's a, a, there's a, there's a continuity here. Jesus is cut off, symbolized in his, in his circumcision, uh, and, the, and that that circumcision is itself reflective of the cross. He is cut off from the people. Uh, Isaiah 53 again. Uh, let's go down to the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, Exodus uh, 2, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. Uh, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Exodus 3. This is the time when God gives his name, uh, the divine name, Jehovah, Yahweh. Uh, the name that Jews uh, uh, did, never pronounced. Uh, notice in Exodus 6.4. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. The land in which they lived as uh, sojourners. Uh, and then uh, in Exodus 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, uh, you've got uh, the Ten Commandments and the amplification of the Ten Commandments. So you've got, you've got law and more law. Uh, 
you should not view, you should not view the, the covenant with Moses as um, a kind of uh, covenant of works come back into operation again, a kind of reduplication of the covenant of works, as though God had tried the covenant of grace with, uh, with Abraham, and then, and then, as it were, another, another attempt to reintroduce the covenant of works uh, with Moses. Uh, that, I think, is a, is a mistake. Um, First of all, remember that the Abrahamic covenant contained law. It it contained uh, legal obligations and requirements. So it's it's not contrary to a principle of grace that in response to that grace... Um, there are demands that God makes. There's, there are ethical and, and, and moral demands that he makes. All covenants, I want to suggest that all covenants have conditions. Uh, in the sense that every covenant has, has a mutual obligation. So what we see, I think, in the Mosaic covenant with Moses, despite the Ten Commandments and the law, um, is that God... God is remembering his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So what he's doing with Moses is he's remembering that he made a promise to Abraham. Now there are some, there are some specific things about the covenant with Moses. God forms the people of God now into, into, a, into a nation, brings them out of captivity, makes them into a nation. Uh, brings them actually into this promised land, and now that they are a people within a land, there are certain there are certain specific things that apply to that period of history. But essentially, God is not saying, "I saved Abraham by grace, and I save Moses by works." Right? That would be a complete misunderstanding. The key, remember the key, right back at the very beginning, that sentence: "There are not." Therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. Well, we've, we've seen the dispensation of Abraham. Now we're looking at the dispensation of Moses. No longer are they a, a sort of wandering family tribe. Now they are a nation, uh, and, a, and, and a nation confined within a land, occupying a land. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different era of uh, the history of redemption. But it's the same covenant uh, of grace. Come down to Second uh, Samuel 7 uh, and Second Samuel 23 uh, and Psalm 89. And you have the Davidic covenant. Uh, notice uh, under, under 2 Samuel 23, I've underlined uh, a section. For he has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure. And then there's a reference to that covenant in, um, in Psalm 89 that actually uh, uses uh, the words, uh, I will sing of the steadfast uh, love of the Lord. Uh, you have said, bottom line, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Again, this uh, phrase, uh, everlasting covenant, we saw it with Abraham, we see it now with David. Uh, Notice here, especially, this uh, reference to covenant love. Uh, Hezed, steadfast love. Uh, The love of, for God so loved the world that he he gave his only begotten son. That, That love. 
Uh, and notice that this co- covenant is ordered or well arranged. Right? Despite, uh, uh, think of the life of David and uh, think of the chaos sometimes that providence seems to be. Uh, and in the middle of all the chaos, there is this ordered, structured, purposeful determination of God to save his people, to send his son, Jesus Christ. So, so that if you pull back right from, from Genesis, if you pull back from Exodus, you pull back from Second Samuel, you, you pull back from the gospel story. And what do you see? You see a single thread uh, running through Old Testament right into the New Testament. One is in promise. One is in fulfillment, one is in shadow, the other is in full blazing light. But it's, it's the one way of salvation and the one savior and the one uh, mediator. So then you come into the period of the prophets, especially the later prophets and the uh, pre-exilic and, and uh, exilic prophets. And you've got Jeremiah 31 with the promise of the new uh, covenant. Um, um, I have too much material. Uh, let, me, um, let me try and summarize this uh, a little. Um, Jeremiah 31, uh, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Remember, Jeremiah is a prophet uh, right on the cusp of the exile. He's in Jerusalem. He is uh, prophesying to the people of Jerusalem that they must succumb to the invasion of the Babylonians. Uh, The northern uh, tribes have have long since fallen to the Assyrians. Uh, The capital of Samaria has gone a hundred years in the past. But now it's Jerusalem's time and and Jeremiah is saying, "You you must succumb. It was very unpatriotic. And he was despised for it. He was put in the stocks and beaten for it. Because he was called a uttering, you know, we say, we speak of uttering Jeremiah's, he was, he was uttering prophecies of doom and gloom. Um, but in the, in the middle of that, right, it was doom and gloom as far as the exile. The exile was coming. It was God's punishment. But God had not forgotten his covenant, his covenant with Abraham, his covenant with Moses, his covenant with David. And so in the middle of all of that, Jeremiah makes this, uh, this promise of a new covenant, Uh, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Uh, From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin uh, no more. Now, there, there are many things in that, in that covenant. One is, it's, it's looking forward to the period of the fulfillment uh, of the covenant of grace in the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament uh, era. And one of the differences between the old covenant and the new covenant, right? not between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, but between the old covenant the covenant of grace in the Old Testament and the covenant of grace in the New Testament is that in the Old Testament the only way you could come into fellowship with God is through a lot of ritual and there were priests and sacrifices and curtains and barriers and, and what is it that is the main feature of the new covenant all those barriers come down the, the priesthood of all believers we, we all have direct access to God 
think of it in terms of Jesus' answer to the question, you know, teach me to pray, and Jesus says, say our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to purchase a lamb and slit its throat and, and, then, and then only get to within, to within a couple of, of, uh, of uh, yards of a curtain uh, and, and, and never come into the very presence of God because there's always a veil and there, there are always priests and, and, and obstacles to fellowship with God. Uh, in the new covenant, uh, all of those obstacles uh, disappear. Um, I have too much material. Um, uh, lots, of, uh, lots of things here. Let me, let me just uh, point to uh, Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews and the better covenant. Um, some of this we've been looking at uh, recently uh, in Dr. Ferguson's exposition of these, uh, of these important passages in, in Hebrews. Um, something was wrong with the old covenant. Not with the covenant itself, but with the people. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them. Right? Hebrews 8, 7 and 8. He's not finding fault with the, with the covenant in and of itself. He's finding fault with them, with the people. They were unable to obey so the first covenant is obsolete. Uh, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. So the old covenant then is not um, abolished so much as it is fulfilled, uh, fulfilled in, in Christ. Uh, the new covenant uh, deals with sin in a way that the old covenant could not. Christ is the mediator of a, of a new uh, a new covenant. Well, my time has gone. I've, I got to. I got to call it a day uh, there. I, I do. If you have the outline, I do want you to read. Um, uh, go home tonight and then make yourself some chamomile tea, uh, Earl Grey tea, and then read this uh, this uh, quotation that I've lifted from Dr. Ferguson's book on the Holy Spirit, uh, which is immensely cleverly uh, nuanced. Uh, it's one of these uh, things you've got to read ten times uh, and then quiz uh, your dog or your spouse or someone, call someone, text someone and ask uh, uh, what, what exactly did Dr. Ferguson mean uh, in these two uh, paragraphs. But uh, a wonderfully nuanced uh, way of explaining something of the difference between the old and the new covenant, both of which are administrations of the one covenant of grace. Now, this is just a teaser. It was just an hors d'oeuvre, really, uh, because covenant theology is something that you could spend, you know, 24 hours expanding on. Um, do, do take note of this blank page on which to write questions. If, if you just want to use this blank page and, and get it to me somehow, some way, pop it in the mail, leave it in a box somewhere, uh, or, or do what the page actually says, and that is go to a website. Uh, but if you can't do that, then just write your question on that, on that piece of uh, paper. And we'll, we'll deal with all of these questions. I've had a number of interesting questions, uh, and we'll try and deal with those questions uh, next week. 
Now, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes. Uh, I know some of you have to leave. Uh, I'm going to pray first, and then I'll give you a couple of minutes uh, before we segue into our time of uh, prayer. Uh, and, and I'm doing it this evening because David Lawton is uh, at the Banner of Truth conference. But let me pray first. Father, we thank you. Thank you for this glimpse into your sovereign purposes to redeem a people for yourself that you promised in the Garden of Eden uh, with Eve that a a seed would be born, uh, one that would crush the head of Satan. Uh, You promised to to, uh, spare the the globe uh, on which your people live. You you promised in Abraham uh, to make of him a great nation and to bless the nations of the world in him. Uh, you, you showed the shape of covenant life in your covenant with Moses. You, you promised a, a king that would come and sit upon a throne in the covenant with David. You, you promised a new covenant, one in which the law would be written uh, not on tablets of stone, but written on our hearts and by the fullness of the indwelling of your spirit sent Uh, as a result of the finished work of our Redeemer uh, on our behalf. We we thank you that we live on this side uh, of of these covenants in the era of the new covenant, that we have direct access to you uh, by faith alone in in Jesus Christ uh, alone. We ask your blessing uh, now as we uh, continue together and pray that these things would be written uh, upon our hearts. We ask it all. In Jesus' name, amen.